Well, we uh, continue today in Luke uh, chapter 14. In fact, if you would if you would turn there, I think uh, we may, yes, we will conclude Luke 14, Lord willing, today. <clears throat> I've tried to figure out how to sugarcoat what you're about to hear, but... Um, a, it's biblical, so there's, it would be foolish of me to do something like that. But I say that just uh, to say, uh, get ready. That what I have entitled this little lesson is, uh, What Value Do You Place on Your Soul? And we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. And uh, if you uh, have been here the last, goodness, it seems like months, months, in the middle of Luke, uh, we're seeing as, as Jesus is training these 12 disciples, he, is, he, is, uh, he knows, of course, what they're going to have to, to endure and, and uh, go through. And, and frankly, that's as true of every one of us as it was of those 12. Now, we will not, hopefully, uh, have to endure the, the kinds of persecution they did and even uh, martyrdom they did, but I'm not even so sure about that. Uh, the way this uh, this world is is uh, digressing, but uh, at any rate, the storyline throughout, as we have seen over and over and over again, is, is Jesus does not deal in gray. Uh, he is uh, he's black and white. There's there is a line in the sand. There there is a terminus, and all of these kinds of of uh, proverbial uh, statements have come from Jesus. We saw last week, for instance, the parable, the great banquet. And if you remember that, we had um, we had these Pharisees around the table, as we've seen five or six times now in Luke. And the story that uh, Jesus brought them through that parable was uh, of a man who was giving a great banquet and, and three different individuals were cited who came forward with excuses, bad excuses, but clearly lying excuses. And uh, I think at this point in Luke, Jesus has had enough of excuses. Uh, so he's going to, to straighten that out a little bit, but I've written five questions in order to set a tone uh, for what we're about to see. And the five questions are these, what exactly is the cost of discipleship? Now by discipleship, uh, I, a lot of people hear that word and they think, well, that's something for a special elite group, so, sort of like Navy SEALs uh, of the Christian faith. No, no, no. Discipleship is for every believer from moment one uh, until uh, we go home to be with the Lord. So what exactly is the cost of discipleship? Question number two, what does it take to attend faithfully the great banquet that Jesus has just uh, illustrated through his parable. Number three, what priorities are required of a follower of Christ? Number four, what value do you place on your soul? Number five, is there a price you are not willing to pay for your soul? These things are behind where we're about to go. Jesus is going to speak to us about all of these very sobering, serious conversation over these next 11 verses. And I've just to, to summarize them, in verse 25, we'll see great expectations. In verse 26, uh, we'll see Jesus needs to come before family and life itself. In verse 27, 
Jesus needs to come before hardship and difficulties. He's going to have two more parables in verses 28 and 30 and another one in 31 and 32. Bottom line in verse 33, Jesus comes before everything. And then he ends with past assault, which will be interesting. We'll see, uh, see where we go. But the bottom line of all of this is that there are no more excuses. We saw the presentation of the three very, very lame excuses in the parable Jesus presented, and now he's going to take us in a different direction. So verse 25 of Luke chapter 14 uh, is uh, sort of interesting in a way. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, uh, Jesus sees an opportunity. The, the, the fact that he turns to speak to them means he's got this, um, this message for them to hear. And when these great crowds came in his direction, uh, he turns and he turns to speak to them. But the interesting thing also is that great crowds are following Jesus. Uh, we never really know the content of the hearts of these great crowds that follow him. We know that throughout scripture, regardless from Genesis to Revelation, you, you get uh, various events uh, that occur. I think, uh, for instance, in Acts 17, when Paul is in Athens, a great crowd comes to follow Paul and to listen to what he has to say. And at the end of that, uh, of that passage, it's very instructive that a few have been seized by the Holy Spirit and they've, they have become followers of Christ, even though they perhaps didn't even know what that phrase would mean, but they wanted more and they're not going to stop following Paul. Another few wanted to get rid of Paul. If they could have, they'd have thrown him off the Areopagus, but, um, but then the grand uh, middle point just, just sort of, uh, hmm, let me think about that sort of thing. And, and frankly, none of that has changed. Uh, you see the same a general proportionate response uh, to the Christian message today. So let's see where this crowd goes in verse 26. Verse 26 says, if anyone comes to me, Jesus, Jesus turns to address his crowd and here's his opening salvo. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I can't imagine any, any weightier statement, any, anything that would perhaps uh, make this crowd at least want to ponder and learn further about what in the world uh, Jesus has just said. He's, he's come with three litmus tests here. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to hate your family and your life. In verse 26, uh, it says, you can't be a disciple of mine unless you hate your family and, and all of these. And it's the word hate that is so difficult to deal with. And the reason for that is, he says, a disciple, you've got to hate your own family. You're, but we also think about the fifth commandment. We can't violate the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, here Jesus says, if you don't hate your father and mother, you can't be my disciple. Now, how are these things going to fit together? We can't forget the sixth commandment, to cherish and encourage and protect your life. Jesus says, if you don't hate your life, you can't be my disciple. That seems to be in total contradiction 
uh, to the sixth commandment. Uh, we also can't violate Jesus's other commandment of love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemies. If you're loving your neighbors as you love yourself, but you're supposed to hate yourself, is Jesus saying you ought to hate your neighbors? Well, obviously not. So what in the world, uh, how do we get out of this uh, this situation? I would suggest uh, if we turn to Genesis 29, go all the way back to the front. Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31, we'll see what's going on here in this uh, very uh, apparently odd statement from Jesus. Genesis 29, verses 31, it says, Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now, there's a lot of of uh, issues behind that story, of course, but, but what's being said here, the reason I bring that up is if you go to this, the Septuagint, the, the uh, Greek version of the Old Testament, you'll see the same verb, the same words used that uh, Jesus uses that's translated hate here in Luke chapter 14. And what it means when you factor in that aspect of it the semantic range of this word, thankfully, uh, extends further than we tend to think of hate being. What it means is preferential. Uh, Laban, Rachel, and, and uh, Bilhah, and all these, uh, you remember how that goes, <laughs> it simply meant back in Genesis uh, that uh, there was a preference made for one versus the other. He didn't hate the other. Uh, there is a preference made, but here in Luke, this word hate is used. So, so don't, uh, don't be thrown by this. What Jesus is saying, he's making a very, very strong statement. But what he's saying by this word hate is don't prefer another. Don't prefer your family over me. Don't prefer your father or mother, your sister, your brother. Don't prefer your own life over me. Now he brings that out with this word hate. Uh, which is about as, as strong a way as, as it could be stated. But, um, but that's what is behind this, this remark by Jesus. His disciple must give him preference over our own family. Indeed, we must love our families, but Jesus has the higher claim whenever conflicts arise. That's what is being said when, when situations may come up, when it's, when it's anything other than Jesus the Christian obligation is to go to Jesus. Uh, same with his disciples, his or her own body, health, life. <clears throat> but devotion to Jesus has the higher claim here as well. Uh, is such devotion possible? That's an interesting question. And that's, that's a question that um, many of us I'd, I would probably assume that every person in this room has had an issue at one point or another in our lives where we had to, to choose. It, it may not have been a life or death scenario, uh, but uh, an issue that, that this would, would be forced upon us, where, where the preference has to be Jesus. Frankly, I think in the 21st century, in the culture that we're in right now, we are going to be faced with this 
very soon. We're faced with it already. We have always been faced with it throughout human history. I was reading this morning about the so-called great ejection, uh, 1662 in England. That's only 12 years after the Westminster Assembly concluded its work, but 12 years later, uh, the kings changed in England, just like presidents change in America. And uh, in came people who, who basically took every Bible-oriented preacher and threw them in prison or worse. Uh, that wasn't unique at that point in time. Previous to that, uh, there had been other kings and queens in England who had uh, burned at the stake. Uh, people like Cranmer and Ridley and uh, and all of those uh, very, very good men. Uh, so the point is that throughout human history, uh, I certainly pray that that never comes uh, down in this country to that extent, but it would not surprise me and it should not surprise any of us that it, it may conceivably occur that uh, this culture begins to assault Christian churches. I frankly would be stunned if that's not happening already and happening soon. You hear these reports about uh, anti-Christian uh, rumors uh, of anti-Christian-ism, I'll say, among some of our uh, own intelligence agencies and so forth. I don't know what the truth or falsehood of that is, but um, but uh, this kind of thing is, is uh, not something that happens over there or up there, or down there, or some other place than America. Uh, this this uh, is going to happen. And uh, there may be a time, and the point Jesus makes again is when those times occur, even if it goes very, very far, <coughs> your preference as a Christian is to, to stay with your faith and your allegiance to Jesus Christ, not anything or anybody else. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, we could look through that entire chapter. You're familiar with Hebrews 11. That's, that's the so-called roll call of faith. And if you go through that list of people that uh, the writer of Hebrews brings to our attention, you know that many of them died for their faith. And uh, that's one of the things that's very impressive about, about that. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, David, Moses, Paul, Stephen, the thief on the cross, it goes on and on and on when you read through scripture about uh, people who have, have uh, kept their allegiance to Jesus Christ all the way to and through their own martyrdom, their own death. And that's what Jesus is saying. And of course, the issue today for us is what would we do? None of us know. Uh, I don't think anybody knows until situations like that uh, occur and they're all unique. But I will tell you again that looking around at the relativism of this culture, the feminism of this culture, uh, the postmodernism, some, uh, as, as uh, I've heard Rick talk about correctly, the, the pre-Christendom of this culture, um, the family destruction, the, the lifestyle, the, the gender confusion, I, it just goes on and on and on. And these sorts of things are not being met by the church in America. Uh, this church stands, but uh, frankly, the majority of churches are not standing to, this, to the degree and in the manner in which I think they should. That's, that's just a personal opinion. Uh, but uh, 
It's easy to be the frog boiled in the water. You need to take a stand and you need to take the stand sooner rather than later. Uh, we go to verse 27. He's going to expand all of this. In verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So here he's, he's going to bear your own cross uh, and come after me. Here the, the key word I think is cross. Uh, why would the cross be used by Jesus? Well, Jesus knows very well, even though no one who is hearing his words at this point has a clue what is about to happen. He is headed down to Jerusalem to a cross as he uh, utters these words. Uh, it's an example of discipleship that's going to be established by Jesus himself. This is, this is God who is going to come and has, uh, has followed obediently his father's wishes to come and take on the form of, of man to be fully God and fully man and go uh, to this shameful, ignominious death of a cross. Um, interesting, the words bear his own cross. You can't read those words without thinking about Jesus stumbling through the streets of Jerusalem, trying to bear up under the weight after he's been whipped uh, and beaten so severely. He's going to drain the cup of God's wrath. He's going to go into a garden where he's sweating blood. He's emptied himself of his glory. We've seen all of that uh, before from Philippians chapter two in order to provide redemption and forgiveness and salvation for his, his children. Uh, a lot of writers, I, I find this, this uh, an interesting description. A lot of writers uh, that I love have said, that, therefore, every Christian must live a cruciform life. What they mean by that is a life that is shaped by the cross, a life that is, uh, is not so much in the shape of a cross, but shaped by the cross of Jesus. I think that's a great uh, phrase to illustrate this. As you see, I brought a few, a few texts. Um, <clears throat> one of the greatest books that I have ever read on marriage, uh, a book by Paul Tripp called What Did You Expect? <laughs> Everybody gets it immediately just from the title. Uh, he talks about, uh, Paul Tripp, of course, is, uh, is a wonderful counselor, a wonderful writer, a wonderful uh, Christian, very strong Christian uh, advocate of, of uh, the kind of thing that, that we're discussing here. And in this book, he talks about, as a counselor, having people come in distraught and say, oh, you've got to help me with my marriage. It's, it's, I, I don't want to be marrying. And he'll say, well, how long were, have you been married? And they'll say, yesterday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, goodness, that's... Um, Nothing like uh, perseverance, but at any rate, uh, he says he says some things in here that uh, that I've just I've, I won't read this passage. But if you're taking notes, here is where he's going to get everything I'm about to read to you, and it's from the book of First John, First John chapter four, verses seven to twelve, and verses sixteen b through twenty one. Uh, Tripp says, in this passage, John is calling us to cruciform love. That is love that shapes itself to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if Jesus loved us in this way, in the same way, we ought to love one another. He's going into a definition 
uh, several definitions now. He says, love, uh, goodness, this, this is so, so powerful. Uh, to define love, he says, love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Now, that's obviously a description of, of uh, the love that Jesus has for each of us to take our sins upon himself and die uh, for us, even though uh, he certainly didn't, didn't have to. He, uh, but uh, Tripp goes on, love is willing, love is willing self-sacrifice, love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another, willing self-sacrifice that does not require reciprocation, as in the case of Jesus. Uh, and, and on and on and on. And then uh, sort of the coup de grace uh, that I had uh, written here <clears throat> pertaining to marriage and trying to fit those descriptions, those definitions he just put into marriage. He says, you and I have no ability whatsoever to change our spouse. The reason Tripp writes that and that's a theme that runs through this book because so many, I would <clears throat> want to say every single human on the planet, but I frankly think that's probably true. There are things that we would like to change about our spouses. Notice I'm not making eye contact. In my <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Nor will I go into any detail. Uh, but I am ready to duck when <clears throat> hymnals start arching their way up to uh, he said, you and I have no ability whatsoever to change our spouse. And when we try, we tend to permit ourselves to be judgmental, critical, and condemning. We tend to focus on the negative instead of the positive. We tend to be more skilled at uncovering what's wrong than we are at encouraging what is right. As we do all of this, we get more and more frustrated and discouraged. And the person we're working on feels disrespected and unloved. And the changes that take place are more negative than they are of positive personal growth. <clears throat> so I will get off of this topic. Uh, <clears throat> but that's what, uh, what Jesus is, uh, is getting to a bit in this notion of a cruciform life. Uh, just as, as Jesus is willing to die on the cross for me, uh, I should be willing to die on on the cross and my crosses, whatever those may be, maybe there, maybe it's an indwelling sin issue uh, that I am having trouble dealing with, or perhaps uh, it's it's dealing with uh, death, um, death of loved ones, uh, whatever. It, perhaps it's my own death that is concerning. Uh, maybe it's dealing with oaths and vows. Maybe it's uh, devoting myself to Jesus, and I'm having trouble. Uh, with that. Maybe it's physical pain. There's so many crosses that we need to be, uh, to shape into a cruciform response to them. Now, Jesus is going to follow verse 27 with a three-verse parable, sometimes called the parable of the prudent builder. Verses 28 to 30 says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, what's Jesus getting at 
in, in this particular uh, parable? Well, he's saying before you sign on the dotted line, Christian, understand the cost. Again, the, the sort of macro perspective of these 11 verses, it's the cost of discipleship. So he's saying, okay, I know you, you, you heard a, maybe a sermon, you, you had a friend, and you say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And Jesus is saying, that's wonderful. Now I want you to count the cost of what you, of the statement you're about to make and the, uh, the decision you're about to make. Uh, it is far more than simply signing on the dotted line or coming forward uh, at an altar call or whatever. That just begins the issue of discipleship. So counting the cost. Uh, the rich young ruler, you remember we've, we've met that man before. Uh, Jesus says, okay, that's great. I'm glad you want to follow me. Now I want you to sell everything you've got. And he can't do it. Uh, that was an aspect of his life. The Pharisees that Jesus has just been in the midst of, Jesus wants them to humble themselves. These men are, they've spent their entire careers building up a, a resume, a, a, a curriculum vitae that they can, can put forward and dazzle the world with and sit in the proper seats and get in the, in the proper uh, invitation lists and everything. Jesus says, humble yourselves, get rid of your legalistic moralism and follow me. And they can't do it. Uh, possessions, friends, vocations, prestige, locations, everything of that ilk, we've got to take and put in a secondary position in order to follow Jesus. If not, we will come up short and be mocked. And in the process as the Christian perspective is concerned, we will therefore bring the gospel and our savior Jesus Christ into a negative position of being mocked through us. Um, second book, <clears throat> a wonderful book called The Cost of Discipleship. Interesting uh, topic here written by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, most of you probably know of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Germany in the 1930s. He was one of the very few pastors who saw clearly what was happening in Germany in the 1930s heading toward uh, Nazism and, and so forth and so on. Godlessness, it's at a, some of its greatest uh, ilk. Uh, and he stood up against it and he gave his life for it. Uh, Bonhoeffer, at one point in the late 1930s, came over to America and he was in New York City and people, uh, his friends here in America, begged him to stay because by that point it was pretty clear uh, what was happening in Germany and where it was all headed. And they said, you don't need to go back, not with your perspective and your refusal to lay low and deny your savior. Uh, Bonhoeffer was not one who did that or ever would do that. And he didn't. He went back to Germany and, of course, uh, very uh, somewhere around the mid-1940s, uh, the middle of World War II, he was, uh, he was imprisoned uh, by the Nazis and just out of spite, he was hung uh, about two days before the war ended uh, in this uh, POW camp. But he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Now you can imagine uh, where this man is uh, coming from. But uh, in this particular uh, passage, goodness, um, he's, he's drawing upon the example of Martin Luther. And um, 
let me see if I can just get through just a bit of it. Uh, Bonhoeffer says, when the Reformation came, the providence of God raised Martin Luther to restore gospel of pure, costly grace. Luther passed through the cloister, but God shattered all his hopes. He showed him through the scriptures that the following of Christ is not an achievement or a merit of a select few, but the divine command to all Christians without distinction. The bottom having thus been knocked out of the religious life, Luther uh, laid hold upon grace. It shattered his whole existence. Once more, he must leave his nets and follow. No, Luther had to leave the cloister and go back to the world, not because the world in itself was good and holy, but because even the cloister was only a part of the world. And this is, this is a, it's a subtle nuance. It is an incredibly important nuance that uh, Bonhoeffer is making in the next words I'm going to read. Luther's return from the cloister to the world was the worst blow the world had suffered since the days of early Christianity. Now came the frontal assault. The only way to follow Jesus was by living in the world. The conflict between the life of the Christian and the life of the world was thus thrown into the sharpest possible relief. It was a hand-to-hand -hand conflict between the Christian and the world. For Luther, the Christian's worldly calling is sanctified only insofar as that calling registers the final radical protest against the world. Here's, here's one of the key sentences. It was not the justification of sin, but the justification of the sinner that drove Luther from the cloister back into the world. It was grace and it was costly. It was grace because it cost so much and it cost so much because it was grace. That was the secret of the gospel of the Reformation, the justification of the sinner. Um, Bonhoeffer goes on, this entire book I recommend to you if you want to look at this uh, topic of the cost of discipleship. He does a wonderful uh, job with it. Um, what do these uh, passages talk about here, this little parable, verses 28, 29, and 30 in Luke 14? What is a disciple? What do, they, do these passages equate Christian with disciple? Yes and no. Disciple is the mandate for every Christian, but every Christian will come up short. Forgiveness and especially commitment and dedication are therefore uh, the call of this brief parable. It's not wrong to want to go build the tower as this builder seeks to do in this parable, but the builder needs to count the cost beforehand. Now in verses 31, 32, he switches the metaphor. He has, a, it's another here, a two verse parable. 31 says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Another illustration of counting the cost. In this case, it's a king who is being apparently assaulted in his kingdom by a group of people, an army, uh, that is 20,000 people stronger or 10,000 people, twice as strong. Uh, Philip Ryken quotes uh, a, a guy named Sun Tzu, who, who was sixth century BC, a Chinese general who said this, quote, a foolish general, begins a battle hoping for a victory, whereas a wise general begins a battle already having secured it. 
that's a that's a fascinating what what uh, what that man is saying is exactly what Jesus is teaching in this parable. Understand what you're getting into and know that you're going to be a conqueror, not because of what's in you, but because of what will be provided to you by your Savior, even if that conquest comes through your death, as it did with Bonhoeffer, uh, as it has done over the, the millennia with so many people who are followers of Jesus Christ. Um, count the cost, in other words, the, the prudent builder. Uh, the two are a little bit different, by the way. The, think about the builder. The builder has a choice to make. He doesn't have to build a tower. Once he counts the cost, if he sees, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough uh, asset base uh, to build this tower, he doesn't have to build it. The king doesn't have that choice. The king is being assaulted. He's being attacked. His country is being attacked. So he has no choice. He's being invaded. So the builder is sitting there saying, can we afford to follow Jesus? Whereas the king is saying, can we afford not to? The king is going to be assaulted whether or not he's ready. Uh, so what Jesus, Jesus is building the tension, building uh, into this particular passage. Um, Jesus is not coming to people saying, okay, here, here's what it means to be a disciple. I want you to count the cost and you may decide not to do it. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying is you will, I will guarantee you utter destruction and an eternity in hell if you choose to go in another direction. But when you follow me, I want you to know what it is that you're getting uh, will follow in your life. Uh, I, I alluded yesterday to... Um, a wonderful Tim Keller uh, statement that he, he gets out of Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, very, very famous verse. That's where uh, Jesus tells Adam and Eve after they've fallen into sin, uh, he tells them that, well, uh, you know, we're going, you're going to lose, Satan. You, you're going to lose. You're going to have some victory, but you're going to lose. Uh, but in the meantime, I, God, am putting enmity between all of you. So as Christians, we need to understand that part of the cost of following Jesus and being a disciple will be suffering, enmity that's going to come in into our lives. The enmity can be health issues eventually. Indeed, it's, it's going to get to the point of death itself. Uh, but uh, many other kinds of enmity are going to come in. God and uh, is going to inject suffering of various kinds. Every, every time we meet, we begin with prayer requests and we hear of, of people having falls, young men, vibrant young men who have a fall uh, and, and uh, other bad things start to happen. And all of these things, they should, we should not be surprised by them. Uh, we should expect them and expect Jesus to be teaching us through them. Those are times in our lives where we get to re-examine the cost of discipleship and what a, a cruciform living is going to mean in the context of that suffering. So pass this all. Verses 34, 35 conclude this. Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. <laughs> uh, the words of Jesus, uh, always uh, incredible. What, what he's referencing here, uh, salt in Jesus's day generally came from the, sea of, uh, from the Dead Sea. 
And we've talked about the Dead Sea before. One of the reasons it's called the Dead Sea, if you see a lot of ancient maps, it was called the Asphalt Sea uh, because still today the ingredients, the brine and the goop uh, that lie at the base of the Dead Sea, uh, huge chunks the size of this room, chunks of, of what we would call asphalt, rise and float in the Dead Sea. That still happens today. It is, it is truly a dead sea. So when you get salt from, from the Dead Sea, you have sodium chloride, but you also have a lot of other things mixed in with it. And if the sodium chloride leaves, uh, what you've got left is something that is not worth putting on your salad uh, or anything else. It's good for nothing, as Jesus says. So he concludes this episode with a very strident illustration. The bottom line of it, of course, Unless we follow Jesus in the true manner of Christian discipleship, we'll be essentially worthless to the kingdom of God. As I mentioned, uh, Jesus is, is growing weary of excuse making. You know what he, in the book of Revelation, I think one of the worst letters to those seven churches is when he comes in and says, get out of here with your lukewarmness. Either be cold, I can deal with you when you're cold, I will send you behind a woodshed or do any number of things when you're cold. I certainly love it when you're hot, but just don't get around me when you're lukewarm. Either be in or out. Don't straddle the fence. Don't try to keep a foot in the world. That's what Bonhoeffer was talking about, Luther and himself and his other fellow pastors from Germany, the vast majority of which caved into Nazism and did not stand for Jesus Christ. I want to conclude... This book, this is it's Reichen's, uh, one, of, one of the volumes of Reichen's commentary on Luke. Uh, here's a cuneiform uh, life, cru cruciform life, rather. Uh, it comes from the death of a Scottish covenanter. This is in that period of time in the 1660s, a great ejection when, when the Puritans and those who would stand on Scripture were being imprisoned and worse. Uh, his name was Hugh McHale, who lived and died during the bloody 1660s when many Presbyterians were put to death for their faith in Jesus. Uh, here's, here's McHale's um, plight. Uh, he steadily refused to reveal the names of his brothers and sisters in Christ. His captors subjected him to excruciating torture. They put his leg in, a, in an iron case. They set a wedge of iron against his knee and when he refused to answer, they repeatedly struck his leg with a heavy mallet until finally his leg shattered. McHale said, I protest solemnly in the sight of God. I can say no more, though all the joints in my body were in as great anguish as my leg. McHale's leg would not be of much use to him, but soon he was sentenced to death. And when he was executed, here were his dying words. Now I leave off to speak any more to creatures. And I turn my speech to thee, O Lord. Now I begin my intercourse with God, which shall never be broken off. Farewell, father and mother, friends and relations. Farewell, the world and all delights. Farewell, meat and drink. Farewell, sun, moon and stars. Welcome, God and father. Welcome, sweet Lord Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Welcome, blessed spirit of grace. God of all consolation, welcome glory, welcome eternal life, welcome death. 
that's a perfect illustration of what Jesus is teaching us. Uh, and again, this, uh, I pray obviously that this will never happen here, but, uh, but no one knows the future. <clears throat> the cost of discipleship is large, but uh, the benefit is so, so much eternally better and greater. Let's pray. Father, uh, we read these words and they are so sobering. Uh, may we take them into our hearts and minds and dedicate our lives to living them. Uh, Father, help us to rid ourselves of lukewarmness of uh, this, this beautiful world in which we live with so much uh, allure to it. Uh, so many things that appeal to the eye and, and the senses and all of these many things. Uh, Father, we thank you for this beautiful world, just looking at the nature around us. Uh, but uh, we pray, Father, that as we see anything beautiful, we realize that only beauty comes from you. That is the only true beauty. And it's cruciform, in shape, Father, shape our lives uh, with the knowledge and understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ and grow us in our faith. So one day, regardless of the situation, when we are aware that we're about to leave this world, we do it gladly and we focus on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the power of your spirit to your glory forever, looking forward to seeing you face to face for an eternity. Father, we thank you for your grace and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.